0: Happy Friday morning, everyone. I am not Mike Smith. I am George Affleck filling in for Mike today. He'll be back on Monday. I hope you're having a great uh, day. And it's going to be a rainy one. But you know what? It's the weekend's weekend coming, so it's going to be good. But first, I want to just talk about something. There <laughs> we go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. That- <laughs> Tim, Tim, okay, that's beautiful sounds of an organ. There's a story I just read, in Vancouver's awesome, saying that the Canucks have actually pulled uh, using uh, their organ at their games. This is a bit of a surprise to some. For 22 years, they've had organist Mike Kenny, uh, who's been playing the games, and if you've gone to a Canucks game or you've heard it, it's kind of, it's part of the, the spirit, I, I would assume. Um, and in fact, the 32 teams in the NHL, only six don't have uh, organs. But now the Canucks have joined that and they're not, certainly in the last three games, have not had the traditional organ at the hockey game what's up with this they say apparently according to the article in Vancouver's Awesome that it's just not really part of our the boister- boisterous feel that we're trying to create at the game so they're, they're focused on uh, you know DJ kind of music and rock and roll music and playing clips of that stuff to get the crowd going so what do you think give us a call on our buzz line today on anything but on this specifically I want to hear what you think should the organ remain at the Canucks games or is it time to let that, uh, that organ uh, make its way out of there call us on our buzz line at 604-331-2899 on that 604-331-2899 I'd love to hear your opinion on that uh, and on any issues we talk about throughout the show and we'll play a selection of them at the end of the show we've got a great show for you today lots of stuff uh, to talk about uh, in this hour Jody Vance is going to be by because she just drove up uh, to the interior and she's going to tell give us a kind of a first person report on that so she'll be back here just after the break we'll also be talking about doom scrolling do you doom scroll on your phone do you spend too time and are you getting depressed well apparently this is a real problem for not only uh, us as, a, as adults but also for kids and it's causing sleep deprivation and all sorts of things so we're going to find out about that we'll have Keith Baldrian, and of course taking your calls in the second hour uh, we'll have the latest on Ukraine of course and some interesting clips that we've pulled for you to hear about what's going on over there In our final hour uh, Netflix apparently gonna, might start cutting us off as far as sharing our passwords and, and, and letting us use our Netflix within our families or friends uh, what do you think about that. We're going to be having a discussion about that as well as uh, Amazon has purchased MGM, uh, and so we're going to be talking a bit about that and the consumer, or the, the, the media is being consumed and Amazon kind of taking over everything in our lives. That and Eric Chapman will be by with a couple of interesting stories, one about ants. I'm not going to give anything more away about that. It's a really interesting story, and of course, your buzz lines at the end of the show. So, you may have a sweet tooth, but sugar-laden foods and drinks come greater cost than any of us truly realize. In a first, University of Alberta researchers estimate the economic burden of all sugary products, not just beverages, on, on, is on Canada's healthcare system. Is a grand total of $5 billion a year it's costing us in our healthcare system, according to this study. Uh, and sugar's monetary toll is substantial and goes beyond just the sweet drinks. To discuss the study, I'm joined by si, uh, Siyun Liu, who's a grad research assistant fellowship student at uh, School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Hello, Dr. Liu. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining me. So this uh, $5 billion, you were part of this study in Alberta. This this is surprising to me. To, was it surprising to you guys as researchers?
1: Yeah, I think we think uh, this um non-burden uh, would be a little lower around the 1.5 because, become our previous studies about the inadequate consumption of the fruits, vegetables, mm-hmm. some, uh, excessive consumption of some other unhealthy foods like protein meat. Like non-burden with the non-burden was around 1, 2, 3 billion. So when we get this, um, non burden due to the excess sugar consumption we thought oh it was a more important uh unhealthy diet needed to be noticed for the public or the researchers or the policymakers because this value was a little bit higher than other unhealthy diets. Yeah.
0: So one point you thought it was gonna be one point five billion but it came into up to five billion.
1: Yeah, we uh, we expected it around uh, around the two billion as other right. unhealthy diets, but in our study we found that it was really high, it's around the five billion. I think it's mainly because it was really close related really to type the diabetes. There are around twenty seven percent of the diabetes could be attributed to so the right. actual Ratio sure consumption, but other chronic diseases, um, maybe not really close to the relationship with their unhealthy diet. Yeah.
0: So diabetes is causing our health. People mm-hmm. getting diabetes because of their sugary diet is costing us our healthcare mm-hmm. system a significant amount of money.
1: Yeah, exactly. So
0: what is considered sugar? I mean, this is the challenge. If you get one of those apps, for example, and you're trying to take care of your diet, I'm always shocked if once I put in my food, I'm going, what? Where did the sugar come from? I didn't eat it. I, I was trying to control my sugar. And yet it seems to be pervasive in all the things we eat these days.
1: Yeah, uh in our study, actually we considering not the old sugar you eat in your daily life. It has the good sugar or the bad sugar. Uh I can define that. And for the bad sugar it's all uh in your estimation, So what about the actual free sugar. The free sugar means the sugar uh added to the food by the mm-hmm. manufacturer, cook, or consumer in your daily life. And it's also uh including the sugar naturally present in the honey syrup and other sweeteners. So we think this unhealthy uh, sugar, uh, this free sugar, are mainly from the uh, dessert, sweets, uh, beverage, and other foods. So I think the most contributor is the dessert and the sweets and other sugary products, and the second contributor is the sugar and beverage. It's also kind of to funny, because in our daily life, we only think the sugar and beverage is really unhealthy uh, food and healthy beverage, and it would be sugar. But in our study, we found that other sugary products have the larger contribution to
0: that. Interesting. So are we on the wrong trend on this? Are we, I mean, I feel like we, we've mm-hmm. been talking about sugar a lot in the recent years, mm-hmm. um, and I would have assumed that, that we were heading in a different direction, but its is it getting worse?
1: Uh, I think it's not a wrong direction because it was it the first step because they're uh, easily too... Um, find some intervention to control the sugar and berry consumption because they have lots of alternatives. You can choose diet, like that. You can choose water. You can choose fruit juice and so on. Mm-hmm. But for the sugary foods. Uh, except for the uh, dessert and sweets, you cannot eat it because it's unnecessary food. But for some sugar in your daily life, you cannot live without it because some food you need to uh, use sugar in their recipe, right? Uh, so I think it's uh, another way to say that it's not a wrong direction to only for example, sugar beverage, but it also need to pay more attention to other foods. If we want to take an intervention uh, to counter the free sugar consumption, you should not only uh, tax on the sugar and beverage or some intervention to help people to risk uh, accessibility of the sugar beverage. Also, should be tell more people about that. There are also lots of sugar from your other sugar foods. You have to be careful when you're mm. making food or you buy food, you should consider the sugar uh, in the nutrition uh, charge, or you should be careful if not. Uh, the tube. Uh, just to add one cap sugar to your uh, bakery
0: product. Yeah, this kind of with, with a surprise number of five billion dollars on our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. This this might be yeah. a wake up call for policymakers. I mean, this could be what some mm-hmm. people often describe. You know, the new smoking. So, for example, policymaking mm-hmm. related to uh, restricting uh, consumption through uh, you know through education through through mm-hmm. maybe maybe with kids not allowed. You know, taxing mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Do you see this when you see these kind of Numbers, is this is this something that governments need to start taking seriously and and be more proactive on like they were with smoking
1: yeah uh, I think it was really important and uh, it was based on the uh, successful country of who the smoking or other uh Healthy behaviors. Uh, I think if uh, the government could use this potential wasted money to some healthy diet. For example, you can give people some water to buy some healthy foods like fruit and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So we go to school, provide the students more uh, uh, diet to cook or the fruit, fruit juice, or the water instead of the fruits and berries. So in that way, you could use this money to some. good place to help them to improve their diet, to help them to avoid some related coronary diseases. So I think it's not only about the money we could be saved, it's also the kind of money we could be used uh, in the future in our daily life to help you to improve their health.
0: Dr. Liu, thanks very much for joining me today. (laughs) Thank you. Welcome back, George Affleck, again for Mike Smith today. Hope you're doing well on this rainy Friday, but it's Friday, so you know that's all right. So, in her latest column for the Orca, entitled uh, "Turning a Corner," uh, Jody uh, Vance provides readers with, uh, you know, a part two. I, I call it of a of a harrowing experience that she had in the fall that she and I talked about here, as well as on our, on our podcast on Spun that we do together. Um, and she's actually gone up to the interior again this weekend for a little vacation with uh, the fam. And Jody joins me now because her column is all about this. This little trip. Hey, Jody. Hey, George. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So you are up in the interior, and you know, let's take take me back first of all to that um, that the, you know when we talked last fall. This was during the floods, uh, and you tell t- t- take us take the listeners back to that experience first, and then tell us about your latest uh, thoughts. Okay,
2: so um, I'm actually back downtown in Vancouver again. We arrived uh, okay. yesterday afternoon, so I've done the there and back now. Okay. There and back again, if you will. But it was back in November 14th, that we all remember
3: yeah.
2: uh, the Atmospheric River. I was up in the interior. I was up in Kamloops and and driving back uh, down into Metro Vancouver. And when we left Kamloops, we thought we were ahead of the game. We left at 11 a.m., You know, cruised through Merritt around noon, grabbed a sandwich, And then we're heading toward the Coca-Cola, and we were among the first couple of cars to be uh, detoured because there had been Mm -hmm. a landslide on the Coca-Cola. It wasn't even raining in Merritt at this moment. And our friends left 45 minutes behind us. Over the course of the next six and a half hours, we experienced um, trauma. I don't even know how... to to put it, it was just, it was like a house of cards tumbling behind Mm -hmm. us on this ride back. And being a born and raised uh, Vancouver, British Columbian, who always drives, um, you know, we found our way and wove our way home. We got home around 7 p.m. that fateful November 14th. White nickel
0: driving hallway.
2: Oh, yeah, George, Mm -hmm. you remember I Mm -hmm. talked to you that very next day. I was terrified and I was really petrified right up until this past Monday, where we were driving back up there. Now, our friends who left 45 minutes after us, you might have heard them on the radio or seen mm-hmm. them on Al Jazeera, because they didn't get home until right. that following Thursday. So we got home that Sunday, they got home on Thursday. And, and then what it followed the was, yeah, yeah, it was,
0: it was quite, the, and the call in was huge, everybody was, it was quite compelling. And, and of course, what happened afterwards, we all know the flooding got worse. You know, well, you know, all know what happened. Uh, the damage was significant. I mean, the, the highways, uh, the Coquihalla, the destruction of this these floods, the storm was significant. Uh, yeah. And there was, you know, I think we were all thinking at that time, how are we going to build back? How are we going to do this? And and I think what you kind of got brought us, there was two things in this latest column in the orca.ca, which I thought were interesting. One was the, the build back, but also the experience. Tell us about both of those things.
2: Okay, so just driving up there at this fear, obviously, Mm -hmm. of hitting the road again. I told you about that last week when we were doing our podcast. And then as we were going, you know, it was a nice day on the way up, and I was absolutely blown away, as I think anybody who decides to get on the highway again, get back on that horse, as it were. And, I mean, all of the hard work that's been done, there are roads that literally did not exist before that are there now so that we can make our way through uh the the winding through the cakahala i mean it took me my usual amount of time door to door to get hmm. to and from uh which i found to be remarkable but mostly in the speed zones like when you had a construction zone everybody slowed down to exactly what the construction zone uh mm-hmm. speed limit was and everybody was waving at the people and it was just there was this wonderful feeling about um the amount of work that has gone into putting this jigsaw puzzle of destroyed highway back together, I think everybody working on that deserves, I don't know, the Order of BC. <laughs>
0: yes. I mean, it's impressive. I and mean, I think because originally we were thinking it's going to be years before we can get this thing yeah. back to normal. And, and, of course, the impact on everything from tourism to just getting our goods down here and, the, and onto the ships and all that other stuff, it was significant. Yeah. And you're saying it looked pretty good. I'm, I'm actually quite shocked in, this, in, in the way you described it. I thought, what? Really? Yeah. And, and another light bulb that went off
2: is that there's a lot of truck traffic. Mm-hmm. And truck after truck after truck after truck after truck went by with full loads and not a single solitary protest sign or flag attached, not one horn yeah. honked.
0: And and that's you know interesting and, and to sort of a a reality check on the percentages of you know that issue in this in this province. For you emotionally though, uh, how did that feel? Real quick, you know, how did that, that? Did you once you got back on there, you're like, okay, I'm good.
2: Well, coming back was a little more harrowing because there was snow on both summits and a really heavy rainfall coming into town. But I did it and I feel like I've recalibrated. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, overall, I think I'm going to be okay. uh, But mostly I just came through with a great feeling of gratitude and understanding and respect for the roadway. You go the speed limit or lower.
0: Thanks, Jody. Appreciate it. Cheers, George. But first, I don't know about you, but with the pandemic and now the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, I spent a lot of time, you know, following news. And, of course, with my job, I do as well. But, you know, it's, it's, there's actually a term for this when people are just a, can't stop themselves. And it's called doom scrolling. And it's not only making us more worried all the time, it's ruining our sleep. Uh, it's not good, especially when you know uh, how many you know many people already have you know, chronic sleep problems, and it, for kids, it can actually be even worse. But why can't we why, why can't we stop ourselves from this? I mean, stop the scrolling. To talk about this, I'm joined by Jesse Miller. He's a social media media educator at MediatedReality.com. Hey, Jesse. George, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. 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 Look, I want to talk uh, to you about this because it's, I read a very interesting article in uh, BuzzFeed by reporter Katie Camero. It was her, her first-person account. Uh, did you get a chance to read it? Because I think it was – I mean, what did you think of it? You had a chance to read it, I think.
4: Yeah, I, I, I went over the article a couple of times, actually, because it, yeah. it seemed very let's – let's tackle all the issues, yeah. right? And it kind of went right to our devices as part of the prominent concern for how we're losing sleep and how we're losing focus in our lives. Um, and then it gave a bunch of tips about, you know, get a new mattress if that's uh, the way you right. want to improve your, your sleep and also get rid of the pets in your bedroom, which I think maybe half the people would just lose their, lose their mind if they had to lose their cats of their bedrooms. So within that, the idea that, uh, you know, the doom scrolling plays a role. Obviously, when we bring mobile devices or big screen TVs into our bedroom, it's going to affect our sleep. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of issues in this article that I, I really do have some concerns with because doom scrolling is an issue, but mm-hmm. it's a small percentage of the problem of why we're losing our sleep.
0: That's true. That's true. But it is something that, we've, I mean, it just seems like a fire hose of, of bad news for two and a half years now. And it's it's like, yeah, and we kind of just get stuck on there. And it's, is there ways for us, because some of it's fear of missing out, the FOMO thing. Like, how, how do I, how do I get away from avoiding this stuff if I'm on my phone and scrolling and I'm looking at yeah. stuff?
4: Now, well, doom scrolling really just describes the compulsive need we have to try and get answers when we're afraid, right? right? And so over the past two years, we've obviously been afraid of a lot more things than maybe, uh, let's say, you know, five years pre- previous. But within that, when we think about our use of social media, we can take everything from the news that we would have on a 24-hour news channel. We would take the sports updates. We would take our mm-hmm. updates from our friends and family and put it all into one space. And we think that we're being more um, convenient to ourselves. We think that we're being uh, less intrusive to others. This is why some people, if they're sharing a bedroom with a partner, uh, you know, they'll be on their device and they don't have a big TV uh, distracting somebody else. But it is about the idea that, you know, the content is there for us and we're going to take the path of least resistance when it does come to uh, keeping ourselves engaged with content. So there are parts of the algorithms that we do need to be aware of and, you know, how we can regulate ourselves on certain apps. Uh, Mm -hmm. But when it comes to it, we put everything in one space and it does make it easier to just look at our phone than it is to read a book or to uh, watch the news or listen to the radio. And if you can pop your ear pods in and scroll through something at the same time, flip over to Netflix on your device, you know, that's part of our convenience culture it's what we've created
0: and you mentioned algorithm because that's what's interesting and i think tiktok has really got this fine-tuned uh where it really is intuitive in how you in what you like to see and it starts feeding you that information more and more if you if you have a, a, a persuasion towards some kind of content it starts feeding you more and i think people don't know that and how do you stop it from doing that
4: well, well, two things. One, I'm a, I'm a TikTok advocate for good use of pro-social awareness and education. Like, There's a lot of really good stuff on TikTok. Mm-hmm. But well, you do have to be aware of how you get yourself into a bit of a silo of affirmation about interests. And so right. in that, the algorithm is so in tune. And in fact, we're seeing more and more that there are some individuals who they would they would negate the fact that their algorithm is really tuned into them. But they'll probably talk about some of the things uh, that they're interested in, maybe with a partner or anybody else. But when they look at TikTok, they're like, wait a second, TikTok knows me really well. Um, which is a really good reflective piece because if you are diving into certain content that you're not willing to talk about, there is there is a mental health capacity there. You know, mm-hmm. what does it mean to really kind of explore some of the things that you aren't prepared to talk about with, with people in your life? So with TikTok, just keep this in mind. The algorithm is designed to keep you focused. Now there's not a lot of advertisements, but it is a culture of communication. And in that space, once you get to that point where you've passed 20 minutes in your day, 30, 40, 50, we're seeing some users up to four or five hours. And it's not necessarily the idea that they're just sitting there looking at TikTok. They're incorporating this into their every day. And again, depends on the content you're absorbing. But interestingly enough, a UBC Okanagan study in 2020 highlighted, it's not whether or not we have the social media, it's how we use it that kind of dictates our happiness. And so if you are only looking at things that are bringing you down, if you're only looking at things that are kind of dragging you to that point where you're like, oh, doom and gloom, um, you're not walking away from that experience in a very happy space. But if you are using social media in an effective way to learn, to expand, to network, and to basically keep in touch with people that you love and care for, there are a lot of really good positives, especially when we consider the past two years. We were really regulated in how we were able to interact with some of the people that we do care about.
0: So, and if you change the way you your habits, then the algorithm will start changing with you
4: too. It can, yeah. Yeah, it can. And that's the thing is that once you get to that point where you're not focusing on something that's very biopic, if you diversify how you, you absorb things. And so for me, like I, I focus a lot on misinformation. I focus a lot on education. So I try my best to diversify the people I'm paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, though, I love getting a laugh. And so there's some great, great creators out of Vancouver who will put things on there. I'm like, I know exactly what they're talking about. Hmm. But at the same time, when we go to those points where we find other influencers from around the world, in that six, seven seconds of a TikTok video, you can learn about what somebody else is facing in the world. You can learn about different aspects of culture that maybe you are somewhat ignorant or naive to. And at the same time, you can be inspired by others. So this morning, I was flipping through TikTok, kind of trying to get an idea of what we're going to talk about here. Mm -hmm. I watched a video of a bunch of guys dancing in Miami on a boardwalk. And all of a sudden, this beautiful man pops in and he's wearing uh, a beautiful gold turban. And he pops in and he does a traditional Bangladesh dance. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you have this community of people coming together and you're feeling pretty good. I'm like, you know what? There is hope in the world for some of the issues we're facing because a little bit of dance can make the day get better.
0: (laughs) What about, though, you know, the quitting cold turkey, just to stop using it? Just don't, just don't, is there any things that people can do, especially with kids, in controlling their consumption? I mean, we hear about apps and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know
4: yeah i'm not, I'm not an advocate for necessarily the tech solution now with red flag solution uh, issues with kids tech 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 limitations do do work really well. Uh, but you know what's neat about like Apple products and Google products when it comes to getting your kids connected, they can offer some built in built-in limitations, mm-hmm. and so in that yeah, it is healthy to minimize. You know, during the school week, how many hours a day your kid has access to the device for the purpose of entertainment. But in that, because our schools have gone so tech-heavy, and there is this kind of amalgamation, uh, you know, even in my own family, my daughter's using aspects of, of Microsoft tools for the purpose of, of collaborating in school. There's messaging aspects that you know keeps her in touch with friends friends at school, and at the same time, she's still got Zoom on there in case they have to go back to virtual mm-hmm. learning. So within that, you can go through the steps and to you know fine tune it, but that does take time. And energy as a family to sit down and go over what the what the rules of the day look like and then you know i'm a big advocate for little wins you know if your kid's getting good grades and they're participating in sports as best we can with all of the things they've gone through in the past two years why not give an extra half hour of a a netflix show why not give an extra 20 minutes of messaging especially when it came down to you know the past two years of being limited in helping develop face-to-face relationships
0: George in for Mike Smith today, and I'm uh, joined by Jesse Miller, a social media ed- educator at MediatedReality.com. And before the break, we were talking about doom scrolling and the fact that it's uh, impacting your lives. Obviously, all the news and negative news that we've had over the last couple of years uh, has really impacted our psyche. And I think uh, uh, you know it's really important for us to manage our, our time on our on our phones and our devices and on our apps. Um, we're taking your calls 604-28098, to give us your thoughts on how you deal with this and how you ha- for your kids especially six oh four two eight oh nine eight nine eight star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell and we've got Terry from New Westminster. Go ahead Terry.
5: Yeah good morning how are you guys doing today good good what's up um yeah um when the pandemic started I panicked and I became a recluse for the first couple months. I'd actually thought about quitting my job and I didn't. I'm glad hmm. I didn't so you know I put the mask on and dealt with it. I have to go in the computer room with the mask on I wear glasses. It's kind of annoying but you know that's part of my job. I actually work in social services, so I like what I'm doing most of the time. Um, I keep in contact with my mother, who's going to be 90, who's going on 30. <laughs> um, <laughs> my sister, who's great, some friends. Um, I watch the news, but I don't get um, super freaked out about it. I mean, the world's gone through a lot more horrible things, actually, if you read about what happened in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read a lot of books. That's how I keep uh, busy, is keep my mind busy that way. Yeah, so I
0: really mixing it
5: up. I'm not doing that well, yeah. right? I know they will do better. And that's what I do. I yeah. don't dwell on the negative. Um, I wake up every morning, walk around the apartment building, get fresh air and some exercise. Instead of myself, you know, it's up to me to make this a good hmm. day. Uh, I can't let the world get me down. Uh, I'm not in denial, but, you know, I have to, like, keep on going and be positive somehow.
0: Thanks Terry I appreciate that and and Jesse you know that's being responsible is one thing is it is it is it that easy though you know Terry really has got a it sounds like he's got a handle on things but is it is it ever that easy? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's that easy,
4: but I think I think putting the effort is important. So when we look at the contrast of doom scrolling versus something like hope scrolling, I think that there's a lot <laughs> of people over the past two years yeah. have have decided how they want to curate parts huh. of their feed. They, they do seek out the good. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate the caller's reference point there to the Second World War, because obviously social media has made us more aware, right? A lot of the things that occurred during the Second World War, uh, after it was all said and done, many people were still very surprised. There was not a lot of news information coming out. And so when we think about the individuals who are creators, I mean, right now I'm following a 17-year-old girl in Ukraine who's literally updating what it means to be a teenager in Ukraine. she right. evacuated to Poland. It's become a bit of a prominent story. I mm-hmm. watched it on Global recently. But the thing is, is that those are the kind of stories that, yes, obviously mainstream media goes to social media now to look more and more for positive stories, the ending point of the mm-hmm. 6 o'clock news to try and grab onto something. And I think what many users can do, and very much to Terry's point, is you can curate parts of your tech use to bring parts of happiness to you. And again, it isn't necessarily about looking for the negative when we think about the mental health and well-being, but if it's if we're not bringing valuable information to ourselves, it are, we might be just using par- parts of social media as a pacifier for other issues that we would be dealing with in a different way. And right. so, when we see the correlation, when people say things like "oh, you know, social media is addictive," you know, I'm not addicted mm-hmm. to social media. I can put it down. But there are there's a curation of how I use this content in my day, whether it be professional, whether it be personal, and whether it be about the things I want to share with people openly on my Twitter feed, or when it comes down to it. I'll, I'll text my partner and say, hey, you know, here's a great video I saw
0: today. Hopefully, it brings you some joy. Yeah, totally. I think that's we often will send the positive videos. I mean, uh, I love the hope scrolling idea. That's uh, a great way to keep it going. Bob, i got Bob from Chilliwack, and we're taking your calls, by the way, 604 280 9898. 604 280 9898, if you want to weigh in on hope scrolling or doom scrolling, but hopefully, hope scrolling. Bob,
3: go ahead. Um, I would suggest this, and I wonder if this makes any sense. I would render any algorithm that goes beyond picking an ad illegal, and I, I do it this hmm. way. Most of these algorithms, this is from the outside looking in, they tend to reinforce the negative. That's what's showing up in the media all the time. Reinforce the negative, reinforce the negative for whatever reason, that programming, maybe it's the fact that source code is still zero and ones because we can't get away from that. Mm-hmm. So I would ban all of that. So any algorithm that drives behavior, that suggests contacts, that suggests hmm. uh, uh, content or contact lists, Friends' suggestions, any of that stuff, I would bar that all. That would all be completely illegal. All you get to do with your algorithm, you don't get to research, all you get to do is run your program to pick ads, to put in front of the eyeballs, and you don't get to provide a link. You leave it open for the person to decide to respond to that ad or not. And I would render that that's how I would run it. So you know, impossible to police probably, but all well, algorithms that go beyond picking ads for me, that would be criminal.
0: Thanks, Bob. It's an interesting question, uh, Jesse, because I know that uh, Apple has really come down and made Facebook's life uh, challenging as far as its new uh, back end and, and caused. And that's, and, but it's more. F- and I think Google is going to be doing the same thing with its phones. You know, it's basically a war against Facebook, which is by far still the most dominant Facebook and Instagram, the most dominant uh, social media platform out there. Um, you know, does that Bob's idea of this of of not just looking at ads and looking at actual organic content and controlling like that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's idealistic to consider this, that we would get to a point of making aspects of algorithms uh, criminal. But the reality of it is is that we've, we've done this with media, no matter it be social or, or, or traditional in any way, it, it, over, the, over the decades, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about curating commercials, trying to put them in certain places, um, regulating aspects of what can be said in commercials, obviously there is some a form of traditional terrestrial broadcast issue that uh, we, we, we've focused on over the decades. But you have to keep in mind here, social media is as a whole about 20 years old uh, in the sense of using it on mobile devices and the curation of the content we've seen in the past 15 years that that has been exponential in its growth. And so, yes, we're always looking for some form of response from government when it comes to issues around cyberbullying and human behavior on these platforms. Mm -hmm. These are just extensions of our environments that we spend time in. And so within that, yes, the the advertisement and the curation of your content, there should be some form of oversight when it comes to making sure that we're seeing content that is verifiable. I'm a big advocate that if you are sharing misinformation online, there should be some form of accountability. But in that, when we look at the way that companies like Facebook, Apple, and, and Google are kind of vying against each other. These are still the top five in, in, uh, in the stock shares. And then when it comes down to it, they're always going to kind of position themselves to limit how they can function on their platforms while still working as the best of friends. And so we won't necessarily see an oversight from a federal mandate mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form, but we would probably see some form of, of guidance similar to the CRTC when we right. think about ways that individuals may be exposed to things, now, although there does go, that does go to a moral value as well.
0: Well, you know, having grown up in the 70s when, you know, people were saying cuz for me it was all television all the time and, you know you could watch and parents were, "Oh my god, my child, he's watching television all the time, he's gonna, his brain's going to turn to mush." Yeah. Uh it's sort of the same kind of conversations now happening related to social media.
4: And again, again, we've always had those moral panics. I mean, in the, in the 1940s, uh, a, a doctor, she started researching kids who had been exposed to radio horror crime, and she was concerned that these kids were going to become more violent because they were listening to uh, radio horror broadcasts mm-hmm. that were very much, you know, they, she would ask questions like, have you ever been to a cinema? And these kids were like, no, I, I don't have a dime. I'm not, I haven't been to a cinema. But the thing is, is that we focus on the negative. We don't focus on the positive, And I think we put a lot more energy into creating and, and raising great people up on social media platforms we would have a lot less doom scrolling and a lot more hope scrolling.
0: Hope scrolling. I love it, Jesse. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, George. Welcome back, George Affleck. In for Mike Smith today. I hope you're doing great. Even though it's kind of rainy, you know, it's a bit rainy out there. I can barely see anything in the skies here. It's uh, we're cloudy here where we are uh, downtown, and I'm uh, not sure where you are, but uh, hopefully you're having a good day. And it's Friday, so TGIF and all that stuff. So if you're like me, you share your Netflix account with it, as many people as possible. Usually they're you know they're usually they're related to me, but sharing access is access is one of the great things actually that I think differentiates streaming services to the old school kind of cable. Like I can give my kids uh, the their uh, my password. Uh, I can give friends if I want to. Um, it sort of it makes the price of it more palatable. You can sort of say, okay, that's not so bad, 20 bucks a month, I mean, but it's four of us using it. But it appears Netflix is getting a bit scroogey on this. To tell us more, I'm joined by Andy Barrar. He's a technology and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com and a weekly contributor on The Shift with Shane Hewitt. Andy. Hi, George. Thanks for joining me. So what is Netflix up to? This is not Canada yet, but this is a, this is a shot across the this is like This is a big deal.
6: Yeah, it's a big deal, and it's something that Netflix has actually known for a long time, that everybody is sharing their passwords. Now, originally, when they put this package together, George, it mm-hmm. was for your household, so that mom, dad, and the kids could each have their own individual profile because people have different interests in, in the kind of content they use. Right. But what started to happen... Especially as other competitors came out on the market, like Amazon Video, Disney Plus. Um, Mm -hmm. What happened was people would start to share those passwords outside of their household. (laughs) So it could be your brother, you know, who has his own family, might have your password. But what people were doing, George, and, uh, and Netflix has known about this. All the streaming platforms know this. People are bartering their passwords. So I'll give you my Netflix password. You give me your Disney Plus (laughs) password. And this Uh has been a common thing amongst families. And they haven't figured out how they're going to curb it because they don't want to lose subscribers to the other platforms. So they've been treading Mm. these waters carefully. And what they finally decided is we're going to experiment trying to charge for additional people that are outside your household because they can tell by your IP if you're in your household or not, and you're watching Netflix, uh, you know,
0: I, I, and it's interesting because you've sort of brought up the one thing that comes to my mind immediately is, well, I, you know, during the pandemic, I subscribed to everything, <laughs> so and now I'm going to start going, okay, what should I get rid of? If they're going to start charge me more, if it's less, if it's less value to it, then I'll start cutting some of them out. So they they, they have that risk, and, and
6: I don't sh- I don't think they're doing enough to potentially stop that sh- that shift. Well the thing is and this is kind of funny that they're doing this right now is that they've already increased the price of Netflix and we've seen mm-hmm. this slowly happen George it started at like 7.99 and mm-hmm. you couldn't say no everybody would get it um, but the price has been going up and up, yep. and now that they're trying to experiment, and what's interesting is they're not doing it. Typically, when they do these experiments, before they roll out a change in the U.S., they will try it in Canada first because we're very <laughs> similar to the U.S. But for this experiment, they don't care about us as uh, so
0: much. <laughs> why? Why would they
6: torture us like that? Well, they they they, they do a lot of what's called A/B testing to uh-huh. see if before we roll this feature out globally or, or into if the big markets. Hates it. Yeah. Okay. So they tried to test it. But for this, they're testing it in Chile, Costa Rica huh. and Peru, because this is something that they're really scared before mm-hmm. what they did, George, to curb password sharing was they, they blocked accounts. They made the person who actually has the account have to authenticate it. Mm-hmm. And so that was just a little roadblock from, from preventing them on this. Right. But what they're trying to do now is monetize it. They're trying to do two things. Increase their subscriber base because that is something they need to do. Their growth is slow, mm-hmm. but they're also trying to increase the revenue because they need more money to to make the new shows. Um, last year, they spent allegedly seventeen billion dollars on content. So yeah, but how much content do they make? Is king and how much cheap. do they make? I mean, they, they're rolling in it. They're making so much money. Well, that's the thing, but they're reinvesting it because of the competition. For years, Netflix had no competition Mm -hmm. and they weren't worried about making money. All they cared about was growth, growth, growth. But then you have a huge company like Amazon get into it. You Mm -hmm. got Apple getting into it. You got Disney with their catalog getting into it. Not only that, but you got streaming options for sports, the zone, the ability to stream. So here's the thing we as consumers can't afford to have all of these. And so something's gonna give, and each of those platforms does not want you to give away their subscription over the other, and that's why they haven't curbed on this password Hmm. sharing. And they're curbing or they're treading these waters very carefully because they don't want to lose or alienate people to the other platforms.
0: Do you think this is the end of the way, you know, the glory days? That because if you look at cable television, when for TV first came out, you could just put an antenna on top of your TV and then you'd be able to get a whole bunch of channels. And then cable was invented. Oh, it's a premium service. Getting all and it's quality so much better. And you get uh, you know HBO and you get all these different cool channels. And uh, and then slowly, uh, you know, it became more and more expensive. So expensive. Uh, And then streaming came along and then now we have all these streaming channels and it's great, it's cheap, so it's it's better. But now we're saying, okay, it's it's getting more expensive and now you're going to control it like this. And then eventually what? It's going to go back to a network system where you're going to only have two or three monopolies controlling uh,
6: what we watch on the streaming channels? Well, very much, and that's that's the ironic part. Is cable television starting to look pretty good now? When you when you look at all the price of everything, mm-hmm. and for years we talked about these cord cutters, you know, people that are mm-hmm. ditching their cable to go to streaming. But there's a the one category that no one ever talked about, George, and that's the cord nevers. These are the ones that <laughs> people like myself who mm-hmm. went to college, university, consumed yeah, all their content on a laptop. Yep. Then they bought a house, and they've never had a cable subscription. Yeah. They never had a landline. So that is an entire category of, of people now. And the problem is, is those people are starting to realize that it's getting really, really expensive. And I wonder now, George, is if piracy in video mm-hmm. will go up because people are, want this content, but they just can't afford it anymore with the price of everything going up. That's, That's right. the first thing you, that we'll give absolutely. is your entertainment options.
0: And I can say for sure that all three of my kids know how to block IPs and hide IPs and pay, probably pay for the services. I don't know any teenager who's <laughs> not potentially you know, finding ways around these things, even though you tell them not to stream or get stuff for free. But it seems like it's quite common that teenagers are finding the movies and stuff uh, no matter
6: what. Yeah, oh yeah, it, that's the thing, and that's really how I got into technology in the first place. Is you know I was from the Napster era where I just wanted music So I learned <laughs> how to get that. Then it was you are old, old Andy. Videos. Napster, what's <laughs> I that? know. Oh, well, I go way back. I, <laughs> I'm going to be a historian in this in the tech world one day uh, to talk about. But you know, Netflix, George, they they got rid of video piracy. That was a huge, mm-hmm. huge problem. They just yeah. made it like so Apple easy. Like Apple did with music, yeah and yeah and they made it so affordable but now the prices are going up now there's more competition and and there's only so much money that we have that we can pay per month for for entertainment and it, 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 this is a very risky move on Netflix. Part.
0: It is, but you think you talk about content and, and you think about any media outlet, even newspapers, because uh, I was just clicking on a link and of course it was an economist article I was trying to read and of course the paywall came up and I'm like, ah, God, I am not a, I don't have an economist account. And um, so newspapers have these paywalls because content is not... It's expensive to produce content. As you said, billions of dollars that Netflix is spending. And so you, somebody's got to pay for that content. You can't just, so there has to be a way to pay for it. And so you can't really punish Netflix for wanting to say, hey, you want this content. It's not free. We got to pay
6: for it. So please give us some money. But what they haven't done, George, is gone the Mm ad-supported revenue model. And and I wonder, what will it take for Netflix to start to say, you know what, we're gonna offer a free version, but you Mm -hmm. gotta watch ads. Because you see that with YouTube, you could watch YouTube for free. You could also pay to not see those ads on YouTube. But Netflix, for some reason, they have yet to try that or experiment with that. And I think a lot of people would get a free Netflix if they had to watch commercials because of the content. They still want to get that content.
0: Well, yeah, I, I don't know how, if you're as old as I am, but when movie theaters brought in ads to, at the top of the before the movies in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, people, and there was, it was. People were like booing. <laughs> they booed, but now it's the normal part. In fact, you actually enjoy some people kind of, oh, I like the commercials before a movie theater because uh, they're, they're high-end commercials. They're commercials I haven't seen or something like that. So you actually can sell it in a way that, oh, these are actually better than regular commercials. So the movie theater industry kind of embraced it and it got a bit of heat for it. But uh, certainly at the top of a, of a show, you could add a lot of extra revenue there.
6: Yeah. And if you look at platforms like Roku, you know, Mm Roku, a lot of people have the Roku streaming stick. They have an ad supported model where they offer a variety of free TV shows. You just got to watch the ads. And, you know, in this day where we're trying like it, everything's expensive George. Yeah. So this is an option I think a lot of people would consider because again they want to watch that content if they got to watch a 15 second commercial so be it at least you know I'm still getting that content I'm not paying mm-hmm. for it and yet that provider is making money just from the advertiser and not their user.
0: Welcome back. George Affleck in for Mike Smith today. And before the break, we were talking about Netflix uh, and its potential, uh, you know, not allowing sharing of your account. Uh, But uh, Amazon, Amazon is now starting its omnipresent, it's it's omnipresent. It really hits everywhere in our lives, it seems. And yesterday they announced an $8.5 billion deal to buy MGM movie studio. Privately held MGM, which you know is Metro Goldwyn Meyer, was founded in 1924 and the deal gives Amazon control of one of Hollywood's most storied brands with a catalog of more than 4,000 film titles, including uh, James Bond movies, Rocky, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Andy Barrar, he' stayed with me. He's going to talk about this. Andy, what do you think about this? For? Uh, this is
6: a, eight point I mean we're talking about content, eight, eight billion. I mean, this is crazy. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is we saw the exact same thing happen with video games, with Xbox buying Activision Hmm. to get their catalog, you know, so you have, you know, platforms that are buying, you know, gaming studios, and now you have the, the likes of Amazon, a video platform buying movie studios. And again, George, it's about the content. Mm-hmm. Because how do you differentiate yourself from the other streaming platforms? And th- th- it's your content. And there's two ways to do that content. You could either buy an existing catalog mm-hmm. you know, that you know is tried, tested, and true. Like, who does not want to watch Rocky uh, over and over again through the entire series? But... <laughs> I, and okay. I've done that and it's okay. very hard on streaming by the way because they each one would have rights for like Rocky 1 or Rocky yeah. 2 but now it's all consolidated oh, right. to make it easier. Now the other way is you make your original content. And so both of them are doing that, but again, the fact that they're they're buying this just tells you that it's all about content and the people at Netflix are definitely worrying about this acquisition mm-hmm. because Amazon's a juggernaut. I always say that one day we're all going to end up working for Amazon. <laughs> they're just taking over everything. Even Google,
0: but- even Google, worries about Amazon when they think about how how they're you know purveying into this advertising platform and and obviously knowing your your habits and what you're buying and they can serve you ads
6: and all this stuff. It's it's they are everywhere. Yeah, and what was interesting about Amazon Video is it just came with your Amazon Prime mm-hmm. subscription. And now I remember, George, when I, I started like trying it out in the early days, and there was really bad content. It was just old shows yeah. that no one really watched. And they have, over time, have... have in- created this juggernaut they're basically the biggest competitor to netflix and the reason why is amazon knows all about data they know how to analyze data Mm -hmm. and they know how to use that data and what they do and and a fellow at netflix told me this once um back way back when they started making their original content the first franchise they made was house of cards and Mm -hmm. i was in vegas uh during the consumer electronics show and i went for dinner with the folks at amazon And after a couple of bottles of wine i was like digging into them to try to get some information and they told me they go we knew house of cards was going to be a hit even before we started production and i'm like how he goes because we looked at the data and we noticed that people that like kevin spacey as an actor also like political dramas and he goes And our algorithms and our machine learning said, if we put Kevin Spacey in a political drama mm-hmm. with this director, we got ourselves a hit and say, so put all that money and it worked and they've continued that. And now Amazon is taking that playbook and doing the same thing, but they also have that catalog now. So that is going to help them attract subscribers, which will give them money. And then they can make more content with the billions of dollars it requires to make movies these days,
0: it also gives them. This is one of the things I hear people concerned about is the reboots and remakes of movies. That gives them access to all this stuff. It's fifty plus years old, some of it, to remake these movies, and uh, in order to make more content that's new. Because old movies are great, but you know you don't get the kind of viewership on the new stuff. And so, if you can do a reboot or a remake, uh, th- that's that kind of count. is huge. MGM's catalog's huge
6: absolutely and we saw this with disney plus you know disney plus Mm -hmm. came late in the game in streaming and just almost overnight because of parents you know when you have kids Mm -hmm. you gotta have disney plus and so they got a huge subscribers and now they're going to continue with those franchises because they obviously have the star wars franchise yeah and they're (laughs) george they're gonna milk that cow oh my god are they they ever already and and george or what's his name the uh yeah the the george lucas is not very happy about it but He sold it. He made his billions. So. Exactly, and so they. This is what it's all about. It's you always see that what is ever old is new again. You know they're making mm-hmm. a new Top Gun. It, it's this is a tried, tested, and true <laughs> method in Hollywood, and now it's coming to streaming as well.
0: What about the consumer though? So we talked about Netflix. It's a twenty bucks. Now they're going to restrict accounts. Prime's always been a bit more challenging for sharing your account, uh, and they of the they keep you know increasing the costs. Prime itself, or the, the having your, your account, and then there's the streaming, and it's getting quite. Calm complicated with Amazon, I find.
6: Yeah, Amazon is just is too big. You know it's, a, it's amazing. you have Amazon Prime music? You, it's just Amazon is just everywhere these days. They're even in space now, George. So <laughs> okay. that just shows you. but the, the issue is all these when, when it comes to creating content, they all want to create the next game yeah. of drones. That's their big. That's the that what keeps, everyone is yeah. trying to do, and they're using the data. Their data, they're reverse engineering it, George. They're looking at our at our viewing habits and trying to see what what actors we like, what kind of movies and genres, and reverse engineer content using the data. And I think that's both a brilliant way uh, of doing it, and something that Hollywood never did. It usually right. you would just have a hunch. You know, you get a <laughs> script, and you would say, oh, I like that script. Let's make a movie, and now pray to know. God that it would be a hit. Yeah. Now it's backwards data-driven all because of machine learning and artificial intelligence.
0: Crazy stuff, Andy. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, George.